This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of subtrochanteric fractures from the trauma section on orthobullets.com. Starting with a quick summary, subtrochanteric fractures are proximal femur fractures located within 5 centimeters of the lesser trochanter that may occur via low energy mechanisms in elderly patients or high energy mechanisms in younger patients. Diagnosis is made with orthogonal radiographs of the hip in patients that present with an inability to bear weight. Treatment is generally operative with cephalomedullary nail fixation. In this episode, we will discuss the epidemiology, etiology, relevant anatomy, classification systems, clinical presentation, imaging findings, treatment options, treatment techniques, and complications of subtrochanteric fractures. Starting with the epidemiology, the incidence of subtrochanteric fractures is relatively common, making up 7 to 34% of femur fractures. Regarding the etiology, this may be different between young patients, elderly patients, and it is important to rule out pathological or atypical femur fractures. In young patients, it is usually a high-energy mechanism, such as an MBC. In elderly patients, a low-energy mechanism may be seen, such as a ground-level fall. And regarding pathologic or atypical femur fractures, the use of denosumab or bisphosphonates, particularly alendronate, can be a risk factor. Regarding important pathoanatomy, the deforming forces on the proximal femur are abduction, flexion, and external rotation. Abduction is caused by the gluteus medius and gluteus minimus, while flexion is caused by the iliopsoas, and external rotation is caused by the short external rotators. The deforming forces on the distal fragment include adduction and shortening, which is performed by the adductors. The most important point regarding the anatomy to be aware of here relates to the biomechanics where weight-bearing leads to net compressive forces on the medial cortex and tensile forces on the lateral cortex. There are three important classification systems to be aware of with respect to subtrochanteric fractures. These include the Russell-Taylor classification, the AOOTA classification, and the ASBMR Task Force Case Definition of Atypical Femur Fractures Revised Criteria. The Russell-Taylor classification was historically used to differentiate between fractures that would be amenable to an intramedullary nail, which were known as type 1 fractures, and those that required some form of a lateral fixed angle device, or type 2 fractures. Current interlocking options with both trochanteric and piriformis entry nails allow for the treatment of type 2 fractures with intramedullary implants, however. Type 1 fractures in the Russell-Taylor classification have no extension into the piriformis fossa, while type 2 fractures have extension into the greater trochanter, with involvement of the piriformis fossa. This should be noted on lateral x-ray to identify piriformis fossa extension. Some examples utilizing the AOOTA classification would include a 32A3.1, which would be a simple, or A, transverse, 3, subtrochanteric fracture, 0.1. Another example would include a 32B3.1, which would be a wedge fracture, classified as B, that is fragmented, 3, and subtrochanteric in nature, 0.1. And lastly, a 32C1.1 would be a complex C, spiral, 1, subtrochanteric fracture, 0.1. Lastly, regarding the ASBMR Task Force Case Definition of Atypical Femur Fractures, the revised criteria, there are both major and minor criteria to this classification, and four of five major criteria should be present to designate a fracture as atypical. Minor features may or may not be present in individual cases. The major criteria include fractures that are associated with no trauma or minimal trauma 
as in a fall from a standing height or less, fractures that originate at the lateral cortex and is substantially transverse in orientation, although it may become oblique as it crosses the medial femur, non-comminuted fractures, complete fractures that extend through both cortices may be involved with the medial spike, while incomplete fractures may involve only the lateral cortex, and localized periosteal or endosteal thickening of the lateral cortex is present at the fracture site. Minor criteria include generalized increase in cortical thickness of the femoral diaphyses, prodromal symptoms such as dole or aching pain in the groin or thigh, bilateral incomplete or complete femoral diaphysis fractures, delayed fracture healing, and specifically excluded are fractures of the femoral neck, intertrochanteric fractures with spiral subtrochanteric extension, pathological fractures associated with primary or metastatic bone tumors, and periprosthetic fractures. Moving on to discuss the clinical presentation of these patients, thorough history should be taken noting a long history of bisphosphonate or denosumab use as well as a history of thigh pain before trauma occurred. Symptoms may include hip and thigh pain as well as the inability to bear weight, and on physical examination there is pain with motion and is typically associated with an obvious deformity with shortening and varus alignment. Flexion of the proximal fragment may threaten the overlying skin. Regarding the imaging findings, Radiographs should be taken with recommended views including the AP and lateral of the hip as well as an AP of the pelvis and a full-length femur film including the knee. Optional views include traction views which may assist with defining fragments in comminuted patterns but is not required. Findings on radiographs include a proximal fragment that is flexed and abducted, a distal fragment that is adducted and externally rotated, and bisphosphonate-related fractures have lateral cortical thickening, increased diaphyseal cortical thickness, transverse or short oblique fracture orientation, a medial spike if a complete fracture is present, and there is a notable lack of comminution. Treatment options include non-operative and operative treatment. Non-operative treatment with observation and pain management is indicated for non-ambulatory patients with medical comorbidities that would not allow them to tolerate surgery but has a limited role due to strong muscular forces displacing the fracture and an inability to mobilize patients without surgical intervention. Operative intervention with intramedullary nailing, usually cephalomedullary nailing, is indicated for historically Russell-Taylor type 1 fractures, but newer designs of intramedullary nailing have expanded the indications. Most subtrochanteric fractures are now treated with IM nails. Notably, Patients on bisphosphonate therapy with pain and radiographic evidence of stress fractures should undergo intramedullary nailing. Fixed angle plate devices may be indicated as surgeon preference or for associated femoral neck fractures, narrow medullary canals, or in pre-existing femoral shaft deformities. Next we will discuss the technique for intramedullary nailing as well as fixed angle plates. Positioning for intramedullary nailing should be done in either the lateral or supine positions. The advantage of lateral positioning is that it allows for easier reduction of the distal fragment to the flexed proximal fragment and allows for easier access to the entry portal, especially for the piriformis nail. The supine position has the advantage of being protective to the injured spine and it is easier to address other injuries in polytrauma patients. Additionally, it is easier to assess femoral rotation. Regarding the techniques for intramedullary nailing, various devices may be considered. The first generation cephalomedullary nail is rarely used, but the second generation reconstruction nail or cephalomedullary nail may be considered. Entrochanteric or piriformis entry portal nails may also be considered. 
Note that piriformis nails may mitigate the risk of iatrogenic malreduction from a proximal valgus bend of the trochanteric entry nail. The pros of intramedullary nailing include that it preserves the vascularity, provides a load-sharing implant, and is a stronger construct in unstable fracture patterns. The cons of intramedullary nailing are that reduction can be technically difficult, as the nail cannot be used to aid in reduction. The fracture must be reduced prior to and during passage of the nail, and may require percutaneous reduction aids or open clamp placement to achieve and maintain reduction. Another con of intramedullary nailing relates to the mismatch of the radius of curvature, noting that nails with a larger radius of curvature are straighter and can lead to perforation of the anterior cortex of the distal femur. Complications of intramedullary nailing include varus malreduction, which will be further discussed in the complications section. Regarding fixed angle plating technique, the approach is through a lateral approach to the proximal femur, in which the surgeon may split or elevate the vastus lateralis off the lateral intermuscular septum, noting the dangers here to include perforating branches of the profunda femoris artery. The technique for fixed angle plating includes a 95 degree blade plate or a condylar screw. The sliding hip screw is contraindicated due to a high rate of malreduction and failure, while a blade plate may function as a tension band construct, noting that the femur eccentrically loaded with tensile forces on the lateral cortex convert to compressive forces on the medial cortex. The cons of fixed angle plating include compromised vascularity of the fragments as well as an inferior strength in unstable fracture patterns. The overall complications of subtrochanteric fractures include varus and procurvatum malunion and nonunion, with specific complications relating to bisphosphonate fractures. Varus and procurvatum malunion is the most common intraoperative complication with antegrade nailing of a subtrochanteric femur fracture. Nonunion may be treated with plating and allows for correction of varus malalignment. Relating to bisphosphonate fractures, Complications are specific to nail fixation versus plate fixation. Nail fixation increases the risk of iatrogenic fracture due to brittle bone and cortical thickening. There is an increased risk of non-union with nail fixation resulting in increased need for revision surgery. With regards to plate fixation and bisphosphonate fractures, there is an increased risk of plate hardware failure because of varus collapse and the dependence on intramembranous healing being inhibited by bisphosphonates. Now that we've gotten a general overview of this topic, let's review a few questions to see how this material has been tested in the past. Question 1. A 70-year-old female with a history of osteoporosis complains of vague left hip pain. She does not complain of right hip pain. Her imaging reveals bilateral lateral cortical thickening. What is the next best step in treatment? Is it 1. Observation and pain control 2. Bone scan 3 intramedullary nailing of the left femur, 4. Intramedullary nailing of bilateral femurs, or 5. Referral to an orthopedic oncologist. The correct answer is 3. Intramedullary nailing of the left femur. This patient has bisphosphonate-related changes of her femurs. Given that the left side is the only symptomatic side, it should be prophylactically nailed. Bisphosphonates have been implicated in causing atypical low-energy femur fractures. Radiographic clues for this impending injury include lateral cortical thickening, otherwise known as beaking, varus remodeling of the femur, and increased diaphyseal cortical thickness. When a fracture occurs, it usually occurs in the subtrochanteric region. The fracture patterns are usually transverse or short oblique in orientation, 
there is also a lack of comminution. The ideal treatment for these injuries is an intramedullary nail, ensuring to restore native alignment and avoiding varus. Vasikaran performed a review of low-energy femoral fractures with prolonged bisphosphonate use. He reported that long-term bisphosphonate therapy is thought to lead to profound suppression of bone turnover, increased microdamage accumulation, and alteration of bone tissue mineral properties as well as possibly bone tissue composition by altering collagen cross-linking, all of which can in turn cause brittleness of bone and propensity to fracture with minimal trauma. He concludes that if a patient becomes symptomatic or sustains a fracture, the cessation of bisphosphonate therapy should be considered. If a fracture has not occurred and the patient is having prodromal symptoms, prophylactic intramedullary nailing should be performed. Balak et al. performed a review on atypical femur fractures associated with dysphosphonate use. They report that following the diagnosis of a complete or impending atypical femur fracture, discontinuation of dysphosphonates is recommended to help promote a more favorable fracture healing environment. They conclude that surgical treatment should allow for endochondral fracture healing such as an IM nail. Regarding the incorrect answers, answer 1 is incorrect as observation and pain control is not appropriate in this case as the patient has an impending fracture. Answer 2 is incorrect as a bone scan is not necessary in this case as the diagnosis can be made from radiographs. Answer 4 is incorrect as intramedullary nailing of both sides is not necessary at this time as the right side is asymptomatic. And answer 5 is incorrect as referral to an orthopedic oncologist is not necessary for treating these injuries. Next question. An 80-year-old patient presents 8 months postoperatively with right groin pain. Examination reveals a leg length discrepancy of 1.5 centimeters. Recent radiographs reveal an atrophic nonunion of the right hip subtrochanteric femur fracture with varus collapse. What is the most appropriate treatment plan? Is it 1. Nail dynamization 2. Removal of hardware, correction of alignment with a tailored spatial frame an insertion of bone autograft. 3. Exchange unreamed nailing with a longer, larger implant. 4. Augmentive plate fixation without nail removal and insertion of bone autograft. Or 5. Hardware removal, correction of alignment, plate fixation, and insertion of bone autograft. The correct answer is 5. Hardware removal, correction of alignment, plate fixation, and insertion of bone autograft. This patient has an atrophic nonunion and varus collapse following cephalomedullary nailing of a subtrochanteric fracture. The ideal treatment involves nail removal, correction of alignment, fracture fixation, and bone grafting. Fixation can be achieved with a nail or plate. Subtrochanteric fractures can be treated with cephalomedullary nailing or fixed angle plates. Nailing of these fractures is technically challenging because the fracture must be reduced prior to nail passage. Failure to do so leads to varus and procurvatum malreduction. Bella Barbara et al. reviewed plating of femoral nonunions after intramedullary nailing. Of 23 nonunions, 21 healed at an average of 12 weeks. The remaining two cases required repeat plating at 2 and 8 weeks for hardware breakage because of non-compliance with weight-bearing restrictions. They advocate plating because it allows for correction of malalignment and provides a biomechanically superior tension band construct. Regarding the incorrect answers, answer 1 is incorrect as dynamization is often less effective in femoral nonunion compared with tibial nonunion. It is suitable for nonunion of axially stable fractures without significant angular deformity 
particularly if statically locked in distraction. It is not suitable in this case because of various collapse and shortening. Answer 2 is incorrect, as the use of tension wire fixators is poorly tolerated in the femur and has a high complication rate. Answer 3 is incorrect, as reamed exchange nailing is the procedure of choice after I am nailing in the absence of femoral deformity. It is less effective in this case of varus collapse and shortening. Exchange unreamed nailing is not useful because the new nail follows the same path as the old, making a deformity correction impossible, and the new nail cannot be larger than the old nail. A larger implant is only possible following reaming, especially if the isthmus is to be crossed. And answer 4 is incorrect, as plating around a nail is inadvisable in this case because of the existing hardware that precludes deformity correction. Last question. An 80-year-old female falls and sustains a subtrochanteric fracture. She's treated with an anterograde cephalomedullary nail. Postoperative imaging of the distal femur reveals perforation of the anterior cortex by the intramedullary implant. Which of the following led to this complication? Is it 1. A nail with lesser radius of curvature, 2. A nail with greater radius of curvature, 3. Piriformis entry nail, 4. Trochanteric entry portal, or 5. Lateral decubitus patient position. The correct answer is 2. Nail with a greater radius of curvature. Perforation of the anterior cortex of the femur by an intramedullary nail is due to a mismatch of curvature of the nail with the anterior bow of the femur and was likely caused by a nail of greater radius of curvature. In other words, a nail straighter than the femur. Egol et al. measured the radius of curvature for 474 matched cadaveric femurs and found the average anterior radius of curvature to be 120 centimeters plus or minus 36 centimeters. In contrast, the radii of curvature for the measured intramedullary nails ranged from 186 centimeters to 300 centimeters, demonstrating that the nails were straighter than the femurs. The authors advocate for a decreased radius of curvature, or more curve, for intramedullary nails, especially larger diameter implants designed for fractures about the hip. Ostrom and Levi present a case series of three patients with subtrochanteric fractures who had anterior perforation of the femoral cortex. They state that the mismatch in femoral bow between bone and the implant is a contributing factor to distal femoral anterior cortex penetration in intramedullary nailing of subtrochanteric fractures. Simonian et al. present four iatrogenic femoral neck fractures that occurred during a series of 315 femoral nails. The authors attempted to reproduce the iatrogenic fractures with cadaveric femurs and felt that the iatrogenic fractures may be due to a combination of a valgus femoral neck an impingement from the AO insertion jig used at the time. Harper and Carson examined 14 cadaveric femurs and intramedullary implants at the time. Similar to Egol et al., they found a mismatch between the radius of curvature of the femurs and the intramedullary nails. That is all for this review about subtrochanteric femur fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or the mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you are not already, 
please be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow, right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.